what we're doing over the next few weeks is really just unpacking the vision of what it means for us to be all in. And one of the, the core, the key dis- distinctives of Ironworks Church is a commitment to its place. And so for Ironworks Church in Phoenixville, which is our mother church, that is, uh, their, their place is very specifically Phoenixville. And for us, our place very specifically is Westchester. So we, so we see our local communities as the place that God has actually put us, the place that God has actually sent us to. So what's that mean? And, and where does that even come from? Is that even a biblical idea? And now fundamentally, we believe that God has sent us to our neighborhoods, that wherever you are, God has put you there for a reason. And so we believe that God loves places, that we believe that God cares for neighborhoods, and that he even calls his church to engage with those communities. In fact, to put it very drastically, Christians are called to leave their places better off than when they first found it. Christians are called to live their communities better off than when they first went there. And so our text today is from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 11. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And you can follow along in your worship guide. You can follow along on the walls uh, behind me. And so this is a, a passage that really gets into this idea how we are called to love our place well. So let's give our careful attention to reading God's word. Jeremiah 24. Excuse me, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when... Seventy years are completed for Babylon. I will visit you, and I will fulfill my, to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word, and we ask now that as we uh, come before you, we pray that your spirit would be working in our heart, that we would see your word and know your word and what it means for us to live in light of your word today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. In 2018, a, a website that's dedicated to all things moving, called move.org, shared that roughly 35 and a half million people move each year. 35 and a half million people move each year. Now, just to put that in perspective, there are roughly 327.2 million people in the United States. If you want to put those numbers together in a fraction, just to let you know, that's about 10%. That's over 10% of the entire American population moves each year. And if you apply this statistic woodenly, and I don't emphasize woodenly, 
the entire American population shifts every seven years. Think about your own life. How many times have you moved? We live in a transient culture. The simple point is we move around a lot. As I look at my own life, I was born in one state. I was born in Michigan. And then from Michigan, we moved to Iowa. And then from Iowa, we moved to Western PA. And I've moved around within Western PA a number of times. So as I look at my own life, I have moved seven times. Many of those times was from um, one community in the same county to another community, like Kennett Square to Westchester. But in other times, it was from one county to another. And, and those seven times I have moved around are low, are low. One friend of mine, by the time he was 28, moved 32 times. Why do we move? Why are we so transient? Well, perhaps it's for a job opportunity. Just looking at my own life again, Jennifer and I moved here from Pittsburgh to Chester County to pursue church planting. And we moved from Kennett Square to Westchester to plant Ironworks Church. And many of you here this morning are students here at Westchester University, and you're here in Westchester to study. You're here, in other words, for a job opportunity. Now, sometimes we will move when, when we want to be in a better school district. One conversation I have with many parents is about how amazing the Downingtown School District is. And they are thinking, hey, let's move to Downingtown. If, well, we could. If we could, we'd move to Downingtown. It's, one of the, it's really one of the best in the state. And years ago, uh, in a family in my church uh, hosted a community group. And we would regularly, during the time of community group, we would regularly hear gunshots going on, on off on their street. And it was wise for that family to move from that community. And now sometimes we move for a lifestyle reason. As you want to have a bigger house as your family grows, or you are just frustrated with street parking. There's a lot of good in what I just described for you. There's a lot of good in what I just described for you. But I want to highlight the evil, unattended consequence. If when we move around so much... For all the opportunities I just listed, we look at our place not as a place to be loved, not as a place to put down roots, but we look at our place as commodities. We look at our place in our communities and neighborhoods as a place to simply enjoy and use as opposed to a place to love and to serve. And this is contrary to Jesus' call upon our lives. Because when we follow Jesus, following Jesus intrinsically involves where we live. The kingdom grows when we put down roots. Now, I want to just highlight something that's really overlooked within the New Testament. Every single time Paul would write a letter to the church, and this is a challenge for you later this afternoon. When Paul would write a letter to the church, he would always say, to the, ch to the church in Corinth, to the Christians who are in Galatia. Every single time Paul would write a tr uh, this letter, it would be, here's your place and here is your union in Christ. My simple point is that following Jesus demands us to take our place seriously. And Shane Wheeler, the director of church planning for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in the entire Southeast, he planted this amazing church in Atlanta, he put it this way, if you amputate worship from your place, a part of worship withers and dies. The same goes for discipleship. The kingdom grows when you put down roots. A commitment to the redemptive purposes of God means being committed to your place. So in other words, 
God has a vision for how you live, where you live. God has a vision for how you live, where you live. That's the entire idea that I want us to think about this morning and reflect upon. But how do we see this reflected and fleshed out within the biblical story? So let me just like give you a, a theology of place as it's developed throughout scripture. And just a warning, I could go all day about this. Because God has a vision for where we live and how we live. And we see this recorded for us and spoken about from the earliest pages of Scripture. God created everything and declared it good. Not just good, but very good. And so when we see God creating humanity, when he creates Adam and Eve, he creates them to be his image bearers. He creates humanity to be his likeness. And so as God's image bearers, what that really means is that we reflect who God is. We show off his character and his rule over the world. In other words, this, we are called to be God's stewards, where we rule God, we rule over this world on God's behalf. We are stewards over this world. And theologians call this the creation mandate. Fill the earth and subdue it. God tells us to make something of his creation that honors and glorifies him. And so this unique relationship between humanity and the world is lost on us when you read an English translation of scripture. Here's what I mean by this. Adam is the Hebrew name for man. It's like, hey, who's that? That's Adam. But the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. Adam, Adama. To put this in other relational terms, the, another word for, another Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. Ish, isha, adam, adama. We are created for a relationship over God's world. And so God created us to have a relationship with our place, but sin happened. This is where we get to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve broke God's law. They, bro they brought the cancer of sin into this world by their rebellion. And so when the fall happens, God curses all the relationships that humanity had with in all of creation. God curses the, the, the marital relationship. God curses the relationship that we have with one another as fellow human beings. God curses uh, us very individually and specifically where we see God cursing Eve with pain and childbirth. But we also see God cursing the world and creation because of our sin. And so, as we, you keep going throughout all the scripture, when you get to Genesis 12, we see God promising land to Abraham and his descendants. That as Abraham would live in covenant with God, as, as Abraham would live out God's reign, God would give his descendants the promised land. And that promised land was, is meant to be a preview or a, a picture of what God's rule looked like in the world. But sinfully, that was not the case. Israel did not, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, did not keep God's law. And meaning they failed in their, in their fundamental purpose of glorifying God and blessing others. And that's the backdrop for our text today. Israel is sent out into exile. And th this is a, a bad thing. Because it's actually a punishment uh, for God's people. But, and so Jeremiah, uh, just to give some immediate context in Jeremiah 28 and Jeremiah 29, 
Jeremiah writes to God's people who have lost their home and they've been taken by cruel force. Like just to let you know, some of the things that the Assyrians would do is that as they would uh, take you to, into, uh, from your home, they would like literally put an earring through your tongue and tie it to a rope and pull you. These were cruel, cruel people. And they're being, the Israelites are being taken by force into a foreign land. And this is traumatic to God's people. As you read uh, the books of the Old Testament, they talk about this in, in incredible, clear honesty. You read the books of Daniel, you'll, you'll see Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. You'll see his friends being thrown into the fiery furnace. If you read the book of Esther, you'll see that uh, Haman was planning a holocaust of the Jews in, while they were in exile. Exile is not a good thing for the Old Testament people of God, but so that really makes Jeremiah's words incredibly countercultural. Because in Jeremiah 28, we see one prophet saying, hey, relax, you'll be back home in two years. That's Jeremiah 28. Jeremiah 29, God comes to, to Jeremiah and says, no, you're going to be there for a long time. Seek the welfare of the city, which I have sent you. In other words, what we just see right here is that God sends his people into exile. And, and, and this is, an, I want to really highlight something from this passage because what God is telling us here in Jeremiah 29 is that our posture towards the world matters. Our posture towards the world matters. And historically, there have been three different postures that Christians have adopted as they relate to their neighbors. Here's some examples. You can either be the same, you can be against, or you can be for. Those are the three postures. Let me just get, um, uh, illustrate each one. Here, we can be the same as our neighbors when there's simply no difference in our beliefs or our lifestyle compared to our neighbors. This is cultural accommodation. In the 1800s, one theologian by the name of Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher, which is a pretty great name, spoken from another German, Schmidtberger. But he literally, and this is with no reservation whatsoever, he sought to make Christianity more accessible to, Ber to modern Berliners. And so let's forget the miraculous. Let's forget the supernatural. Let's forget all those things. That's cultural accommodation. And when the church does this, we're not seeking the welfare of the city. Instead, we, we're just being the same. We're not being the city on the hill. We're not being the salty of the earth. We're not being the light of the world that Jesus tells us to be in Matthew 5. So we, can, we, we could be the same. That's one posture. Another posture is that we could be against our neighbors, where we see them as our, as our enemy. And in our cultural, in our cultural moment, we, the, we need to admit that we live in a polarized world where we think there are sides. Our culture thinks of binaries. There's good versus evil, left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, gay versus straight, us versus them. And that binary way of looking at life is a lie. Instead, there's, there's a loving, holy God versus sinners. And that loving, holy God comes to us, and we are caught up in that. that like, so we, we are called to be for our neighbors. Again, our posture matters. Our posture matters. We can be for our neighbors. And I could give illustration after illustration of examples of how God's people are for their neighbors. 
perhaps a well-known historical example is that during the fall of the Roman Empire, not leading up to the fall of the Roman Empire, a hundred years leading up to it, there was a plague that hit Rome. And what was going on is that people were getting sick. And uh, the Roman emperor, who was a pagan, said, hey, all the pagan priests are fleeing to the city. And what are the Christians doing? They're staying in the city. They're caring for the sick and, and nurturing them, even at the risk of their own health and safety. That's an, that is one example. Another example um, could be William Wilberforce leading the abolition movement in the British Empire in the early 1800s. And the stories go on and on and on. We are called to be for our neighbors, where we are called to seek the peace of the city, to seek the welfare of, of the city. And right there you'll notice I'm using a, a word interchangeably. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. In our English translation, the word welfare is actually the word shalom, which is this Hebrew word that means that's, it's an all-encompassing peace. It includes prosperity, it includes wholeness, it includes peace. It is actually a word that is a preview of the world to come when Jesus has come again. It is a word that is a preview of the new creation. And so even here, so to looking in our text, to bring this to our lives right now, even in our text, even as, as God's people are sent into exile, amid the sin of life, God cares how they live and where they live, even in the hardest and most traumatic moments of their lives. Seek the peace of the city. Marry in the faith. Build homes. Plant gardens. Have kids. Raise kids. Be grandparents. And give your sons and daughters away in marriage to one another. In other words, what God calls us to is that as we are called to be for our communities, we are called to be redemptive agents within our communities. This actually brings us to Jesus. Because in the background, like we, we're seeing right now that God cares about our places all throughout Scripture. But we even see this in Jesus' own life as well. Because Jesus is central to how we think about our places. When we think about creation, God created the world. In other words, I just want to highlight that. God created the world and said this is a good thing. And so he loves this world and he cares about this world so much that he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue it. And so Jesus comes to rescue this world. And, and the apostle John in his gospel speaks about this event of the incarnation by saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word for dwelt is the same word for house. Like so literally, like, so some translations may say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And Eugene Peterson provocatively puts it this way, that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And so what I want to highlight with Jesus is that Jesus personally modeled for us the ministry of presence. Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to be a redemptive agent of God's reign. And so like I said a few moments ago, this is something that we are that's fleshed out for us all throughout the New Testament. When Paul's writing to the church, he's writing to the Christians who are in Corinth, to the Christians who are in Galatia, in Ephesians, and so forth and so on. And so we're always in Christ, and we're always in a particular place, and we're called to be faithfully present, to live out the reign of God where God has put us, just like Jesus models for us. And Leslie Newbegin put it this way. And Leslie Newbegin uh, is, it was a missionary who left the United Kingdom in the, in the 1930s. 
he goes to India, and he's a Presbyterian missionary, but he goes to India, and, and when, as he's in India, he works in, within the Anglican Church and becomes a bishop of the Anglican Church to uh, care for that, that Church of India. But he comes back to, to the UK in about the 60s. And so just to put that in perspective, before World War uh, II, and then coming back when the Beatles, he, like, he's like, you know, the United Kingdom is a post-Christian culture. And like Leslie Newbegin is the one who gave us that perspective. But this is what he says about the church. It is not just that a church happens to be located in that s- spot on the map. The church is not just a geographical place. It is a church of God for that place, and it is because the church does not exist for itself, but the church exists for the world which Jesus came to save. The church exists for the world. This means that as a church, we exist for those who do not yet know God. Just as much as we we exist as a church for those who do know God. What I'm highlighting for you is the truth of the call to confession that I highlighted for us. As you have sent me, I send them. The church exists for skeptics, for seekers, for the religious alike, to follow the way of Jesus wherever God has put us. For us, that's Westchester. And so as followers of Christ, we're called to be the very presence of Christ in our place as he makes his appeal through us. Again, I've said this before, but I love how the the Liberty Network of Churches talks about this, their mission statement. We we, uh, live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Christ in our neighborhoods. That is a beautiful picture as a beautiful phrase uh, just to to help us see this picture of what we're called to. But we fail to do this. We fail to do this because of our arrogance. We fail to be the very presence of Christ because of our arrogance. And let me just give you two examples. One is very humorous, still serious, while the other is much more serious and just serious. But have you ever sat down with your friend or a roommate or your spouse and they proceed to tell you some frustrations that they were having uh, about their day? Do you sit down and listen to them? Or do you sit down and tell them what they did wrong? Or do you sit down and tell them what to do? And in these moments, uh, your friend, your, your spouse, does not need any more guilt from their mistakes, about their mistakes. They do not need a problem-solving session. Instead, they, listen, they need a listening ear. And, and I definitely follow fall into this trap of going into problem-solving mode. But, like, that, the idea that I'm getting at is, like, we, in our arrogance, think we know what people need. Here's another example of fleshing that out. Leon's Crump, a former uh, NFL player for the Hawks and the, the Saints. He's a church planner in Atlanta. He planted Renovation Church. And he tells the story of how he led this church to be a very neighborhood-centered church, He did not want any commuters to be a part of their church. And they had some really good reasons for that. Because the suburbs of of Atlanta had incredibly good churches. But the churches that were in downtown Atlanta that were gospel-centered and doing good ministry were less than the number of fingers and thumbs you have on your hands. And so it was like they, they wanted to be a very strong church committed to their city. And so, they, so he challenged people. It's like, hey, don't commute. 
God, like, hey, there's plenty of churches near you. Go to a good one. Or, hey, in fact, on our website, here's a list of all the good churches. You go to one of them or move in. People responded to that, and people moved in by the hundreds. Over time, he, he realized that here's a renovation. A church committed to loving the city was actually gentrifying the city. That was displacing the poor and displacing and being used by developers in, in raising um, rents, um, raising the rent. And so all of a sudden, they were faced with a choice. Like, here's, here's their idea of what this community needed, and they were actually hurting the very community to which they were trying to minister to. The point that I'm, again, fleshing out for us is what, does, what do we need? What do people need? What does Westchester need? And this is a conversation I have quite a bit. What does our city need? Sometimes, like, so the conversations can go all over. Hey, we need a good coffee shop. And, you, and many of you know how I would love that answer. <laughs> but I want to f- point something else, something out to you. That ultimately, desperately, Westchester is a community that needs the gospel. The closest religious community to the campus is a universalist Unitarian congregation. Within two, two blocks of my house, there's a meditation center. There are two cults. And, excuse me, there's a meditation center and two cults. As you drive out of Westchester heading to Exton, you will see an Islamic study center and a Jewish synagogue. I had a friend while living in Kennet who studied with a warlock for a year and a day. Do we realize that Chester County is a pagan community? While what Chester County is the wealthiest county in the state of Pennsylvania, the average income of the, ha- the average household income in the borough is $55,000. Do we have the eyes to see the lost? Or do we see that there are some pretty awesome churches in town? Do we have the eyes to see the economic disparity and injustice in the community? Or do we just see the amazing, delicious restaurants and boutique stores here in town? We are called to have eyes We're called to have God's eyes as we look on our communities. We're called to pray to God, Father, may your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. Do we personalize that prayer? Do we say, Father, your kingdom come in Westchester as is in heaven? Do we pray that way? How are we called to live out this theology of place? And here's just a a few couple points of, of application the first point has been something that's pretty clear to us as we've been moving through this, but fundamentally, your place matters. If you are a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are sent into your neighborhood. You are exactly where God wants you to be. You are sent. It's, not, it's no accident that you live where you do. And the, and the reason why our community groups, in fact, this is the reason why our community groups are primarily geographically based. Westchester, West Goshen, Bradford, and Kennett, we want to enable you to love the place that God has sent you to. We want you to love the place God has put you. And each of these groups, our community groups, are meant to own the spiritual confusion or path the physical brokenness, the needs, the pains, the hearts, the hurts, and the struggles and fears of the community it is sent to. Your place matters. Second thing, stay put. One of the most strategic things that you can do 
and I'm putting this right on par with sharing the gospel, is staying put and putting your roots down. And that's provocative. But let me explain this. In today's post-Christian culture, you cannot just give someone a tract. You cannot just go door to door. You cannot kick over a milk cart and just uh, do open-air evangelism. You cannot use those old-school methods of evangelism whatsoever. That's not going to bring people to Christ. More and more, and we see this throughout Scripture, we see this in it within our lived experience, that we need to build relationships with people. We need to listen to them. We need to learn their stories. We need to open up our lives and invite them further into our lives. In other words, we need to have relationships with people. And we live in one of the most transient eras in history. And the truth of God's word is that you will not see the kingdom of God in your life unless you are going to stay put and, and put down roots. And that's a challenge for, to many of you. And so as students, as you are thinking through what's next for you, I want to invite you to consider staying put and, and look for opportunities around Westchester and for other families. And, like, again, this is a challenge. The challenge is for you to, to stay put as well, to, to look at your community and your neighborhood and, and your neighbors and say, all of this matters to God, and I'm called to be here in this moment because it's not an accident for where God has put you. And then thirdly, pray. We don't have all the answers. And so we need to humbly follow God. God calls us to love our place with a gospel intentionality. And so as often as we look out where we live, as often as we're in the car driving around, as we're walking around, pray for your community. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for our city officials. Pray for the homeless. Pray for the fatherless. And pray for the diverse community and the people group that live around you. Pray for your place. That is what God calls us to as he says, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Pray for your place. And in conclusion, we're called to minister to a particular place. Every place in the world belongs to God. It's his kingdom. This world belongs to God, and he will redeem it. And so we see this incredible promise that Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And so the, the truth of God's word is that Jesus is going to redeem it, and yet we get to have a role in that. And it's our role, it's our job to make him known and to live faithfully under his reign because God has sent us into our neighborhoods, into our workplace, into the spheres that he has put us to. That is our mission field, as it were. Our mission field includes the families and our community group. It includes the neighbor who needs their sidewalk shoveled or their driveway plowed. It includes the guy ranting about Christians at the bar. It includes the homeless person who is asking for a few bucks. When we forget, when we forget that God sent us to love our place for his glory, the church stops existing for the world, and the church exists only for herself. But when we remember that our place matters, then the church fundamentally exists for the world, and we'll begin to see God's kingdom come on earth in Westchester, in Bradford, in Goshen, in Kennet, on in all these places as it is in heaven. Let's pray.